beer fans, welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn, and Drew's not here at the moment, but if he was, he would say that we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, Homebrew All-Stars, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your best bookstores. Between the two of us, we have nearly 50 years of homebrewing experience. He's the guy who's known for weird beer and strange ideas, and I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Since Drew isn't here this week, and I'm in charge, we're going to do things a little bit differently. We're going to listen to a couple of my favorite segments from past shows, starting with uh, a discussion we did of the Cezanne DuPont East and how to avoid the infamous Cezanne stall. We'll be joined in that by Marshall Schott and my friend Jeremy Marsden, who's a real-life chemist. And then we're going to uh, replay a segment we did where we talked to Brian Perky of Lollamond about uh, his brewing life and all things yeast. Uh, Brian has worked for a lot of big companies and has a wealth of information for us. But maybe the most exciting thing that's going to be different today is that we're going to have not one, but two ukulele breaks. I'll bet you're all just waiting for that. So please stick around, and I'll be back right after these messages from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, publishers of Zymergy Magazine, organizers of HomebrewCon, and enjoyers of homebrew. Join your friends in fermentation at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back. As we always do, we're going to start off the show with an announcement. Join us November 4th through 6th, 2021 at the Brew Your Own Boot Camp in Denver, Colorado, and spend the day learning hands-on with us. On Thursday, November 4th, we'll be presenting Simplify Your Brewing in a Boot Camp, and on Saturday, November 6th, we'll present Homebrew Experiments Boot Camp. You can save $150 off a three-day registration before September 7th if you use the code BootCampDenver21 when you register at BYOBootCamp.com. Space is limited to just 35 spots in each boot camp, so don't wait. Lock in your spot, and we'll see you in Denver in November. Don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts or by clicking the AHA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause. We just finished up uh, with supporting the World Central Kitchen, and uh, next show we'll be announcing how much money we all raised for that. And we're looking for a new charitable cause. So if you have any ideas of something that will benefit a lot of people all over the U.S. or the world, Please send us a message at podcastandexperimentalbrew.com and let us know. We're going to kick things off today 
by going back and listening to the results of our Cezanne stall experiment, where we uh, tried to determine the cause and the uh, cure for why sometimes the DuPont Cezanne strain stalls out on fermentation and people have to result to uh, extraordinary measures like pitching another yeast or uh, raising the temperature to ridiculous levels. Turns out that you really don't have to do any of that stuff, it appears. So, please, sit back, relax, grab yourself a beer, unless you're driving, and take a listen to the discussion of Cezanne Stahl and the DuPont strain. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Okay, everybody, we are here in the lab today to report on some experimental results. And besides Drew and me, we have our good buddy and fellow experimental Marshall Schott with us from Brewlosophy. How you doing, Marshall? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back on. I'm doing good. Thanks for being here, buddy. I think it's very cool that uh, we can coordinate our experiments like this and get a whole wide range of results. <laughs> and by wide range, I mean wide range. <laughs> What's amazing is that we that we I don't think we actually planned this out. We just happened to do be doing something yeah. similar at the same time. Yeah, so. Yeah, I know, man. Well, serendipity works. There it is. Well, and 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 I and I think yeah. You know, I mean, going forward, I hope that you know periodically we can come back and revisit this sort of thing because I like the reaching out via different audiences and different me- methodologies and seeing is there something there. Definitely. Yeah, and as we all know, uh, the bigger the sample you get, the, the more interesting the results become. For sure. So, Drew, do you want to uh, run down what the experiment was exactly? All right. Yeah. So this is the experiment that is all about my particular technique of uh, brewing saisons and something that I learned a number of years ago where the DuPont strains or what everybody thinks are the DuPont strains, which are uh, Y-East 3724 Belgian saison and White Labs 565 uh, Belgian saison, they're notorious. They're finicky. They're a pain in the rear to use, uh, at least according to Internet lore and homebrewers in general. Because they'll get going, you make a big starter, uh, they run like gangbusters for the first three days, and then they sort of poop out and hang out for two weeks before finally picking back up and finishing out the beer. And I had never really experienced that problem, at least not for years and years. And I was finally talking with some folks from uh, a couple of the yeast companies, and they they hinted in that the yeast strains are back pressure sensitive, according to what they're able to figure out. And what that means is that any additional pressure in the fermenter causes them to stall out. Uh, <clears throat> and so I realized that, oh, well, then the reason I've never seen this is because I open ferment most of my beers, including my saisons. So I literally put the wort into my 10-gallon corny kegs, crack the pressure relief valve, and slap a piece of foil over the top of it, and then let them run. I have a very particular protocol that I do, which is I chill the wort down into the mid-60s, preferably around 63, and then pitch a healthy quantity of yeast, crack open the pressure relief valve, let it sit for three days uh, at a relatively cool temperature, so somewhere in the low 60s uh, to the mid-60s, and then 
let the heat rip and go, right? Because that's been everybody's solution in the past is, oh, you've got to get the DuPont strains really, really hot, you know, 90 degrees or 80 degrees or something like that in order to get them to ferment. And I use part of that, but when I've done forced heating uh, for the entire period of time, I've gotten some really nasty characters out of it. So I like that start of an initial cool fermentation followed by a hot rocket finish. And so what we did was we had the Igors uh, give this one a test. Uh, we used my recipe, uh, which is my Saison Experimental, which is a very clean, very classic, very simple Saison. Uh, and uh, we had them use uh, YEAST 3724 or White Labs 565, and we had them do exactly my protocol. And we also had them do one of the fermenters with an airlock and one without. And I know a lot of people are out there going, oh, you know, an airlock's not going to make that much difference. It's only like an inch of water. Well, let's find out. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I guess uh, we're, we're going to start off here by playing an interview that I did uh, with a guy in my club by the name of Jeremiah Marsden. Uh, Jeremiah is a chemist by trade and uh, runs a chemical analysis company. He is an amazingly good brewer uh, with a wide array of very cool equipment. And uh, he he did this experiment and uh, reported on his results. So uh, let's just take a quick listen to that. So uh, we're talking to my friend Jeremiah Marsden, who's a member of my homebrew club, the Cascade Brewer Society, and he did the Saison experiment himself. Uh, how's it going today, Jeremiah? Doing well, Benny. How are you? Uh, I'm great, man. So uh, just a little bit about your background here, just so people know. You are a chemist, is that correct? That's right. Uh, and you run your own chemistry company of some sort, uh, right? Doing analysis? Yeah, Cascade Custom Chemistry. So we're a synthetic lab. We've got 15 chemists, mostly working for pharmaceutical companies. Wow, cool, man. So uh, tell me, uh, how did you go about doing this Saison experiment? What what was the recipe that you used, and what was uh, your procedure? Yeah, I used um, Drew's recipe that he published and kind of went about a similar protocol that he had. So you've got about 85% Pilsner, um, 5% flaked wheat, and then about 10% sugar. Uh, a little magnum in there for hops at 60 minutes, 20 IBU. And then um, used the Y-East 3724, the Belgian Saison yeast. Right, right. And did you just brew one batch of wort and split it, I assume? Yep, one five-gallon batch uh, using the Grain Father brew system. That was that was going to be my next question, if you used your grain father on it. You it, yep. <laughs> I kind of figured you would. So uh, tell me about the uh, the fermentation. Sure, yeah. So um, I split that into two two-and-a-half-gallon carboys. One of them uh, put in an S-lock bubbler. The other one was left open with a loose foil cap. Um Pitched them both about uh, 64 degrees, I think, and um, just let it kind of rock at room temperature. It was in the 60s. I think it went up probably low 70s in the first three days. Yeah. And let's see. I checked the gravities uh, day three after it started. It seemed like it started to slow down on day three. 
And then they're both at 10.36 from 10.56 starting. Okay. And they're both proceeding pretty similarly at that point. Um, day 10, checked them again, and the one with the bubbler was at 10.30. The one uh, open with the foil was at 10.24. So. Whoa. So that was at day 10? Day 10, yeah. So you were seeing a really big difference just a week and a half in. Yeah, which surprised me. I came into this thinking it was uh, bogus. <laughs> Hear that, Drew? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I know that Drew has done this often enough that he was pretty certain of the results. So uh, I, I'm glad that we don't have to tell him that he's full of it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me that there's not that much pressure in a bubbler, but I guess the CO2 is scrubbing out more easily if it's open, my guess. Um. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, an interesting thing. From your point of view as a chemist, can you think of anything that is causing this? I think it, maybe the yeast is just sensitive to CO2, and when it's open, you're getting kind of more movement in there, the CO2 coming out more easily. Uh-huh. Not sure if that's right or not. So what was the final gravity on both of them? Okay, so I kept checking these after a while, and I started swirling after 10 days to get the yeast kind of, both get the yeast in suspension and to help the CO2 come out. Uh-huh. And, okay, day 22, we're still plugging along. The With the bubbler, now we're down to 1028, dropped a couple points. But with the open one, we're down to ten oh six. Wow, twenty two yeah. points difference. Yeah, yeah, and that was uh, three weeks. Whoa! And did you just make one starter and divide it between the two batches, or did you make two starters, or how did you do that? Um, I did not make a starter. I okay. just I poured the uh, yeast into a grad cylinder mm-hmm. and or half into each fermenter. Okay. Okay. And uh, so then we so then you just split one one smack pack between the the two fermenters, right? Right. So then we didn't have to uh, to worry about different day codes and stuff. And no, uh, knowing what you do and how you do things, I'm going to trust that uh, that you got the yeast divided pretty evenly. Yeah. Yeah. We use the graduated cylinders. So. <laughs> you you have equipment far beyond what the average home brewer uses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, and okay, so the and what about the the taste of the final batches? So the the one that dried out, the open one, I kegged that up. It tastes great, and I worried maybe it was infection that caused it to drop. Uh, it's clearly not infected. It did taste great. It's similar to Dupont Saison. Right. Um, the one with the bubbler, that now is at six or seven weeks. I'm still working on it. So <laughs> <laughs> I left the bubbler on. I tried heating it uh, in the 90s for about a week. Right. That didn't drop at all during that period. Um, and then uh, left it about two or three weeks. After that, just at room temperature, and it's down to about 1020 now. So it is still going. Wow, and that's interesting. Just the taste from the samplers, uh, it tastes great. A little, little sweet, but I, I'm just going to let it, let it yeah. go. 
So uh, based on this, uh, when you make saisons in the future, will you be using the open fermentation method? I sure will with this season. <laughs> yeah, that's true, and I I do believe that it's somewhat strain dependent too. I I think that if you're going to like say use thirty seven eleven or something like that, you won't find uh, as yeah. much of of a difference. So, okay, Jeremiah, I'm going to let you get back to your exciting work day. But uh, thanks a lot for taking some time out to talk to us about the Cezanne experiment. No problem. Thanks, Denny. All right, man. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye. So uh, we heard Jeremiah's results on the experiment, and I got to tell you, in some ways I'm surprised, and in some ways I'm not surprised. Uh, his, uh, his fermentation performance pretty much matched what Drew had found in terms of, uh, of airlock versus no airlock and attenuation versus less attenuation. But on the other hand, tasting, the beers seem to be remarkably similar. Uh, what do you think? I, well, I think that's pretty fascinating. One, it completely confirms Drew's theory, which, um, which we'll get to my results later. But, um, the, the fact, if, if I, if I heard correctly, he still has, uh, the airlock batch sitting in the fermenter and it's still slowly attenuating, yeah. right? So he's, he's comparing fermenting beer to, uh, basically a finished beer that, and they taste about the same. Um, that to me says a lot about, how, you know, fermentation character isn't always the most defining aspect of a beer, which is pretty, pretty, <laughs> just really interesting to me. Well, well, and and you've seen, I mean, we've done experiments before, and we've seen other ex- people's experiments where they talk about, oh, you know, this beer had a radically different final gravity from the other sample, and people still have a hard time picking it out. I and for me, I've always said I don't think this is necessarily uh, the technique is necessarily a flavor influencer as much as it is an ability to get the damn thing to finish. Yeah, I can hmm. I can see that for sure. Um, you know, and it is it is just fascinating to me, and definitely contrary to the conventional homebrew wisdom uh, that beers with such radically different final gravities or specific gravities, in the case of the one that isn't finished fermenting yet. Uh, can be so similar in flavor. So, I also think it. Uh, I think it also helps that the particular yeast strains that we're talking about are very big character producers. They have very distinctive characters, and those characters are all generated early in fermentation. So, what you've got is all those clove and spice and and other flavors that are in there from the very beginning, and now you're just getting to the point where you're shaving off kind of the final bits of sweetness. Because yeah, remember, right. he he did say that. Oh yeah, the second one, the second one tastes very similar, but it's yeah, still sweet right, a, a little bit. So, so Jeremiah had really dramatically different results, at least in the yeast performance in these two beers. But you didn't, huh, Marshall? No, and a little bit of self-disclosure here. I'm not. I don't brew a lot of saison. You know, um, I I tend to stick with a lot of um, you know lager styles and and, and American ale. Um, so, so when I make a saison, I really want it to be good enough for me to want to drink since it's kind of unique that I have one on tap. Um, and so what I did is I, I did my best to follow, uh, the, the article over on the Malthus Falcons website that Drew put out a while ago, um, in terms of getting these results. And, and, uh, I'd never used the DuPont strain before, uh, either 565 or 3724, uh, so I didn't really know what to expect. And I'll admit, I kind of stayed away from it out of fear of this g- apparent issue. Um, 
so in designing the beer, I, um, I, I put together a, what I call my say you, say me, say Zon. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a recipe that I made last year using a different yeast figured that it would work well for this. Um, I built up one of the things that I, it sounds like I did differently than Jeremiah is I actually did build up a starter, um, uh, 1250 milliliters using two smack packs of 3724. Uh, and then I split that evenly between each batch and my results, the, the objective results even were, were quite a bit different than what he got. I don't know yeah, if yeah, you want yeah. me to go, go into ahead, that man. now or yeah. <laughs> All right. So the brew day was a typical brew day. I split the batch evenly trying to get as much, trying to equalize the kettle trube in each, in each carboy. Uh, one got covered with a sanitized piece of foil. The other one was immediately covered with an airlock. I uh, cooled the beers down to 64 degrees because I thought that was <laughs> right. Um, and uh, once they got to 64, the, the starter was split between both. And I let them sit at, it was controlled to 64 degrees for three days before I came back and I started taking regular hydrometer, uh, readings. Um, something I don't usually do, but I thought for this variable, it seemed prudent. Um, and so the very first hydrometer reading, both, both, uh, beers looked to be right at about, uh, 1025, 1026 specific gravity. So they were looking the same at this point. Uh, again, I think that, that kind of, goes in line is congruent with what Jeremiah found at first. Um, and then it, th this is when I, I bumped the regulator up to 90 degrees, but I didn't apply, I didn't apply any heat. So I just let it, the exothermic, uh, heat kind of bring it up on its own, uh, over time. And I came back, let's see, four days later, took another hydrometer reading. I also noted the, the temperature at this point to be 84 degrees. And at this point, there was a difference, but it was in the opposite direction <laughs> than what I expected. Dude, you screwed it up. <laughs> the foil cup. And this is when I started. I know it was totally <laughs> my fault. Uh, this is when I really started questioning all of the all of the information I've you know uh, I've absorbed from Master Drew. <laughs> and uh, what <laughs> what I found was that uh, so what, a full weekend basically the foil covered batch was at ten twelve specific gravity while the airlock batch was at ten ten. So it had actually dropped two points lower uh, than the non back pressure uh, batch. I waited another four days and I came back and measured them again. Um, I had, I, I started applying heat as well to bring it up to 90 degrees. So now we're at what, 11 days and the foil batch had dropped to uh 10, 10 and the airlock batch was down at 10 07. So pretty, I don't, you know, in terms of, of, um, uh, gravity measurements, that seems pretty, pretty yeah. different to me. Um, let's see here. Three more days. I took a lot of these hydrometer measurements. Um, Three days later, so I th believe that's 14 days, two weeks total. The foil-covered batch was at 10.07. The airlock batch was at 10.05. They were both sitting at 90 degrees at this point. Everything else looked exactly the same. Uh, you know, the the just the nature of fermentation, the way the Croizen looked, all that stuff looked the same. Uh, I I finally, another three days, so we're at, what, 17 days now. Uh, I, I took a hydrometer measurement that showed the foil covered batch to be at 1006, the airlock covered batch to be at 1004. And then I confirmed no change in that three days later, uh, two or three days later. And so that's, it was at that point that I started to cold crash the beers. So it, one of the, one of the things I thought was interesting is that this is, this 
beer, regardless of whether it was covered with foil or an airlock, took a long time to ferment compared to what I'm normally seeing, you know, when I'm using other ale yeasts. Hmm. That is really, that so, is really so did, weird. Uh, you got any explanations for that, Drew? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Marshall Dunn. F- yeah. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, I would say, uh, I would argue. <laughs> I do yeah, do that. Well, we all yeah. do. Uh, anybody who says they don't is lying. Um, (laughs) I would, I would suppose, I mean, one, I always say that doing, doing a lot of work to make sure that your yeast is healthy forgives a lot of sins in the brewing process. Um, so I think, yeah, the starter, the starter makes a difference. I also think the fact that you force, uh, force heated up to 90. Also probably made a mm-hmm. difference as well. I mean, given the, the relative differences in your final gravities, even, and even the observed gravities as you were going along, uh, the differences are relatively negligible. Um, so I'm just trying to think, cause like with Jeremiah's batch, we know that he, he didn't force heat. Like he didn't get up into the nineties. He, uh, if I recall correctly from the interview, he got up into yeah, the mid seventies. That's right. So it, that, and I, I actually considered that when I first started to, um, when, I, when basically what I did, it was at 64 for three days, and then I just turned off the regulator. Mm-hmm. Um, which the way I do that is I just bump up, bump up the temp and unplug the heater, right? So it was, it wasn't until about a week in when I'm, I'm trying to go back and look at the photo here. Um, let's see. Yeah, it wasn't until a full week in that I started ramping up the temp, and all I did is I, I, I would do five degrees ambient temp heated per day. So it would get up there and just kind of sit and the beers would slowly rise. So I was trying to be gentle about it. Um, again, I don't, I don't make much Saison. A part of me thought that was the way you were supposed to do it. So I was just following convention, at least in my mind, but it wasn't, it was, I didn't push it really hard. I mean, it, it, it got to 90 eventually, you know, at the two week mark, but it, you know, it, they were, we were already down at 10, 10, ish range before I, before I applied any heat at all. Yeah. I was going to say, Drew, why don't you talk a bit about uh, the results we got from the Igors? All right. Yeah. So now we had uh, three different sets of results coming from the Igors, uh, uh, specifically Matt Yoakum, who is a new Igor, James Kay and uh, Jason Mundy all reported back in and they had a total of uh, 35 uh, tasters. And this is just on the tasting results first, because, and we'll talk about why I don't think that these are the interesting part of the experiment. But they had 35 total tasters. Of the 35 uh, total tasters, 15 were able to correctly identify which beer had been, uh, which was the different beer in the triangle testing, uh, which actually puts it below the point of significance, because we would need 17 in order mm-hmm. to get it uh, a significant finding. Now, so that means, okay, great, our our tasters couldn't tell the difference between the two beers reliably. And I'm okay with that because again, to go back to the point of what we were talking about, I consider this to be more of a, uh, of a technique for production. And is there a difference with the, the production? So what we see coming out almost invariably, I think with each of the, uh, each of the experimenters, and I'm just going to pull the, uh, pull up the notes here real quick we see that they all had the same sort of reaction where they actually were seeing differences between uh, the fermentation performance uh, right. too. Um, to the point where uh, all of them uh, are basically going, huh, I guess maybe this is how I should do it. 
Uh, Marshall, you're the real um, outlier here, buddy. But <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I think uh, I, I think the best experiment, uh, the best results that we had were from people going, "I'm really, really surprised that this made a difference." I, I'm fascinated. I, I, I right. the, obviously, this is the first I've seen of your guys's data, the Igor's data at least, and uh, he, and, and hearing about that just absolutely, I, I thought everyone would experience what I did, but. I, and I have no, I have no good excuse. I have no good. The beers both tasted exactly the same. The obvious answer is uh, you suck uh, as a brewer. Generally enjoyed by everyone who drank it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I, <laughs> we've all we've all well, known that. Yeah. The yeah. I'm, okay, I'm only at right. I'm only at batch 488. Um, I, I've still got like 22 yeah, I mean, more to, to go. Give, before uh, I'm give good, me an idea so. of looking, yeah. at, looking at some of these results more uh, more fully, like uh, Jason Mundy's results. Uh, he he probably had the most dramatic split other than Jeremiah, where after 11 days, his airlock batch was still sitting at uh, 1020, and his non-airlock batch was sitting at 1004. Yeah. Uh, and we see we see that with the, the other ones where eventually all the all the other experimenters got it got the airlock batch down. But, uh, which I think really drives home the point that, you know, okay, at the end, the fermentation characters were going to taste relatively the same, but it took them more time. So. Do we know, uh, do we know if any of the Igors, uh, did the kind of temp thing that Marshall did where they just totally jacked it up, uh, or did they do the slow rise like Jeremiah? Um, no, I'm trying to see, uh, looking at the results, I, uh, Matt Yoakum, uh, specifically notes doing, uh, a rise. And holding holding the temperatures using a heat wrap, and he got them up to uh, uh, well, okay, he he's using communist uh, units, uh, 25.5 C. Yeah, it is, it is. Yeah, so so, I mean, so that's close that's to what warm. Marshall um, was doing. Yeah, and and that's fine. I mean, I think uh, I think that's that's absolutely dandy uh, for uh, our American listeners. Uh, in freedom units, 25.5 C is uh, 77.9 Fahrenheit. So not not as hot, though, uh, as but yeah, no, not not as hot. But uh, again, I I tend to think heat gets overplayed. Uh, when I I did my big yeast strain experiment uh, five six years ago now, uh, I did a batch with five sixty five uh, unheated with a natural rise, and I did a batch of five sixty five where I basically slapped a heat wrap around the damn thing and uh, pushed it to eighty five degrees right from the bat. Don't do that. That's a terrible, terrible idea. <laughs> I actually, I think I read that somewhere that you did that. And I, yeah, I that, intentionally avoided it for that reason. That, that's in the that's in the saison guide, uh, yeah. uh, strain guide. If you uh, that I have on the Maltos Falcons webpage that we'll link in the episode. But yeah, really don't do that one because that's that just makes a bad, right. bad beer. <laughs> well, so so I should say. Um, just going over my notes here. I, I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that I raised the ambient to 90 degrees. The right. warmest the beers ever got was about 87 degrees before I started cold crashing, which is, that's, that's the warmest I've ever brought a beer up to. Uh, but it was, I mean, at 87 degrees, by that time, the attenuation was what, 85, 90% done. So. All right. But now, uh, but now looking through what we have since, uh, no. I think we we're all in agreement that the P value for, you know, whether or not the tastes are different is probably not the interesting piece out of this experiment. But to me, it's we had Definitely. five different yeah. runs of the same experimental approach, right? Between the three Igors, Jeremiah and, and Marshall. And of those five, 
four of them saw actual differences between the fermentation characteristics. And Marshall screwed it up. No, no, Mar- Marshall's right. the outlier. Uh, <laughs> so to me, that says, hey, that's that's actually kind of meaningful. Yeah. Um, so so Marshall, uh, based on the fact I think so that too. Yeah. So many other people have uh, experienced different results than you did. Is this something you may revisit? Uh, poten- potentially, yeah. I, you know, the thing is, I, I said I don't make much saison, but I, um, I almost open ferment solely, at least for the first, I don't know, week or so of fermentation, regardless of the beer I'm making, whether it's a, you know, German Pilsner or American mm-hmm. Brown Ale. I just slap some uh, sanitized foil over the top and let it go. So, in t- in terms of practice, right. I, I'm actually not going to be changing anything because I kind of already do it. Um, re- revisiting the specifically how the, 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 the fermentation characteristics of, uh, the Cezanne DuPont strain or whatever that, that strain is. Um, I think, I think it deserves to be <laughs> yeah, looked at again for sure. It, I'm not, I, I can't say when I'm going to get back <laughs> wait, to wait, it. Wait, wait, you're, you're, you're not running out of new experiments to try? <laughs> it t- yeah. Yeah. Good Lord. But, but the, you know, the thing is, um, when it comes to, I, I I think it's interesting to think about what we all presumed would be the case. And, you know, when I got done collecting data on this, I'd chat with the participants a bit and, and almost ubiquitously there was this idea that, oh, come on, you know, an airlock's not going to create anywhere near enough pressure to have an impact on the yeast. But the fact so many people, uh, seem to kind of share the experience of a, a slower attenuation. When yeah. there's an airlock on there seems to yeah. say something. Well, and, I mean, that, that's really and interesting. And I appreciate what Jeremiah said in his interview where he mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of people object to the idea of, oh, you know, it's the airlock generating back pressure. And, you know, I'm not necessarily the world's most enamored of that particular explanation, but Jeremiah mentioned the, the other one that I think is possibly a culprit, which mm-hmm. is CO2 toxicity. Because if you watch how these, how people talk about yeah. the stall, the stall always seems to be, okay, the beer stalls out and then it sits for a couple of weeks and then it comes back, which to my mind is enough time for you to lose CO2 out of solution. Yeah. And, and the yeast kind of comes back to life. So I don't know. Maybe it's CO2 toxicity. Maybe it's back pressure. Maybe it's something else. But there definitely does seem to be a, an effect here. And most importantly to me about this whole thing is I hope that this, these sorts of results will encourage people to go and use these strains, these persnickety, finicky strains that everybody seems to avoid because oh, I don't want to have to wait 24 days in order to get my beer to be ready. And instead they use a perfectly fine mm-hmm. yeast strain, which is the Y-Yeast 3711, the French Saison, which is a powerhouse. It does great things. Uh, it makes for some really interesting uh, base beer characteristics. But to my mind, it just doesn't deliver the saison punch that I want. So I, I see a lot of people making some really sort of boring beers marketed as saisons because they're using uh, 3711. And having said that, I use 3711 a lot to do a lot of my hoppy saisons and to do my weird things like the clam chowder. Right. So in other words, hey. Now you know how to use these strains. We think there is actually a thing. We hope that you give it another shot and give it a test. But don't avoid 3724 and 565 just because you think they're going to take forever. Just slap some foil over that bugger and see what happens. Yeah. I, I'm actually really curious to see what other, uh, you know, what other 
less finicky yeast strains, how they respond. I mean, are we going to see, um, assuming that with the majority of, of people, including myself who have done this, um, assuming that the majority experience is what is what is typically going to be experienced by other people. You know, if I'm, if I'm fermenting with, uh, 090, uh, you know, an IPA and I throw a piece of foil over the top, is it going to work a little bit faster than if I had an airlock? I mean, I've never it's, done it's a, a comparison like that. I was going to say, I mean, that's a good thing to test. It's a good thing to test because I think, uh, you know, particularly with the, the number of strains that we have, even the American strains that are British in origin originally, I mean, we know that several of those British strains do much better with open fermentation than they do with closed fermentation. Right. I'm yeah. So, I'm anxious to try it with uh, with 1450 mm, to tell you the mm. truth. Uh, I can I can get pretty good performance out of 1450. Yes. Hold on. Yes, Denny. What's 1450 oh, for the audience? Sorry. Why yeast 1450, Denny's favorite. Thank you, Drew. Uh, and I, I, it's not, it's not like I get, uh, like royalties from saying that. But, uh, at any rate, <laughs> I wish. Just from selling uh, it. Yeah. So, uh, but basically, you know, I get, I, I get I'm pretty sure. good performance out of that. It will generally chew through, uh, an average gravity beer in like three, four days. Uh, but what I want, so I'm not really expecting a huge performance difference, but I want to see if maybe it generates a flavor difference, uh, by doing that, but who knows? So let's, let's wrap this up here, guys. Uh, here's, here's my takeaway and you tell me if you agree with it. My takeaway from this is that if you're using the DuPont strain for a Saison, uh, whether you're using the White Labs version or the Y-East version, you will probably get better performance and an easier fermentation by doing an open slash foil over the fermenter type of fermentation than by using an airlock but it will not make a huge difference in the flavor of the beer. And the caveat on that first part is unless you're Marshall. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, my, I would say that you're there, you know, the way I look at it is it's, it's added insurance. I mean, there seems to be some evidence supporting this notion that the, you know, the open fermentation with foil over the top of the, uh, of, of the carboy is, uh, it's not going to work against you. And at the very least, uh, it's going to work, right. you know, to help you out and, and, uh, not work to avoid. I, I would agree with that. And I would also, uh, reiterate my uh, recommendation that I think some of the most interesting saisons I've ever done have actually been with a pitch blend of both the Y East 3724 and the white labs 565. Interesting. So, so, so the, the, you, I, you perceive I, slight differences in them, huh? Yeah, I do. And, you know, also, you know, people ask, Hey, you know, so DuPont has these wonderful square fermenters. Yeah, and you see attached to the square fermenters a very large bubbling airlock. Uh, why don't they experience this problem? And I usually argue that it's because if you look at the yeast that DuPont's using, they are using, uh, at least in theory, something that has at least two strains of yeast and one strain of bread. Hmm. Interesting. So they may have additional uh, additional help in the fermenter that we're not getting by sort of our focus on uh Pure monocultures. Yeah, right. We're we're using very, you know, specific isolates of, of that strain, and it's going to have a different. Yeah. Effect. So so it's like it's like we've all pointed out before. Uh, what 
applies to commercial breweries does not necessarily apply to home brewers. Blasphemy. Yep. but again ladies and gentlemen brewers of all ages and stripes and and styles and archetypes please remember this now means that you have the tools in your hands to avoid the monstrosity that is the saison stall followed by a pitch of uso5 (laughs) or 1056 (laughs) yeah that's right okay guys great discussion cool experiment marshall thank you so much for joining us today my pleasure all right now and now we now we gotta see what's the next thing that we're going to accidentally do <laughs> yeah, at the same right. time let's talk about that yeah, later or, or <laughs> may, yeah yeah or, or maybe or maybe maybe we should actually try and do one for uh yeah all together yeah that'd real. be actually plan oh boy huh? all right guys mm-hmm. thanks a bunch uh we're gonna take a quick break here and we will be right back adios all right Hope you enjoyed that and picked up some useful information that will make your life a little bit better the next time you're using the DuPont Saison strain. We'll be back in a minute to listen to a chat we had with Mr. Brian Perky right after these messages from the people who make the show possible. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Are you looking for an exciting new opportunity in the brewing industry? Country Malt Group is hiring. Current openings include associates, managers, supply chain professionals, and more. There are immediate opportunities in the following locations. Vancouver, Washington, Champlain, Asheville, Oakland, and Toronto. Full-time jobs at Country Malt Group offer attractive compensation and benefits, including a generous paid time-off policy, plus discounts on your favorite malt and brewing supplies. For more information and to apply, visit Country Malt Group.
countrymaltgroup.com forward slash careers today. That's countrymaltgroup.com forward slash careers. Welcome back, everybody. So uh, a couple years ago, I was coming back from Hop and Brew School up in Yakima, Washington, along with Jeff and Susan Rankert, who had uh, been there also. We made a stop in Hood River, Oregon, just across the border from Washington. Beautiful little place. So we could have a chat with Mr. Brian Perkey. Brian is the national sales manager for Lolliman, a major, major dry yeast company, and he's worked for a ton of different great breweries over his uh, career. So he had a lot of insight into both brewing and yeast. So I hope you enjoy this. Please sit back, relax, and grab yourself a beer unless you're driving, and I'll be back in just a minute. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. So come on in. Come on in. Just come on in. And pour yourself a beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. All right, welcome back. It's time to get comfy. I hope you're sitting down. I'm sitting down. Yes, it's time for us to lounge because we're here in the lounge. And, of course, here in the lounge, we talk to interesting people about interesting things. So just to set this up, after I skedaddled out of Yakima to get back home to my day job, uh, Denny decided to take a leisurely trip back home. And on the way, uh, stopped in Hood River and, well, took two of our friends from the uh, American Homebrewers Association, uh, Jeff and Susan Reichert, and sat down. Well, where did you sit down? Who did you sit down with? And what did you talk about? <laughs> yeah, you know, every year when I come back from Hop and Brew School, I drive through Hood River thinking about all the wonderful breweries there and what a gorgeous location it is and saying to myself, nope, dude, you got four more hours to drive. You can't stop and drink. This year, I decided it was time to do something about that. Uh, I rented a gorgeous uh, hotel room in Hood River overlooking the Columbia River, nice balcony and everything, and uh, invited uh, my good buddy Brian Perkey over to visit us and sit down and talk about his amazing career in the brewing industry. And uh, since I had Jeff and Susan with me, uh, I asked them to get involved in the conversation, too. I took along a selection of ale song beers to stimulate conversation and a bag of pretzels and uh, asked Susan to be the cellar master and pick beers and open them for us. So uh, what we did was we all sat around a table. I turned on the recorder, and we talked beer and brewing and Brian's life for an hour or so. Uh, 
really interesting. Uh, you know, you'll be able to hear it. Uh, it's it's live. It's different. It's really fun. So uh, I, I hope that you'll enjoy the interview as much as uh, we enjoyed having the conversation. Well, yeah, like I said, there's a lot to learn from Brian and a lot to see about brewing history there. Definitely there's a lot to learn from Brian. And uh, just as, as a little note here, we tried to keep the pretzel noise to a minimum, but, you know, you guys may end up hearing us uh, drinking and eating. There you go. So, uh, misphonia sufferers, beware. Everyone else. <laughs> Strap in. There's two major uh, dry yeast manufacturers out there with a couple other auxiliary ones. Right. Uh, and it's Fermentus. Right. Which does Safale. Right. And then there's Us, which is like Danstar and Lovelin. Right. Right. And we're kind of like trying to rebrand just under Lovelin. Okay. So that's that's a good idea. Yeah. But you'll see this Lao. So Lao Vin. Oh, okay. right. Lao Vin. Lao Vin. That's where that right. comes from. And now we're doing Lao Brew when we're talking about our beer yeasts. So from a branding perspective, that's kind of how we're trying to. My next my next beer is going to be a German Pils with the Diamond Lager that Aaron sent me. It's you know, and that's all based off of the thirty four seventy. So it's all the same basic stuff. I, I, t- I talked to a woman who's like a, a microbiology person for you guys at the conference, and I asked her if, it, if uh, the Diamond Lager was like 3470, and she said, all I can really say is it's a famous German, ye- famous German yeast that's frequently used. Uh, so. Yeah, and, and so is it genetically identical? No. I don't care if it's genetically identical. I drink the beer, man. It's like I don't, I don't sit there and analyze it. But with direct, with drag yeast, we kind of have to reverse engineer mm-hmm. with what it is that we're trying to achieve. And like the New England strain is a perfect example, right? So okay, something that's got that big, like tropical, juicy punch, you know, that's a, a you know, not a super attenuator, right? Um, and you work backwards from there. It's like, okay, so what's this going to deliver the peach note? And uh, so that's where that comes from. To say that we've got like, oh, you can take 1056 or 001 or SO5 or, and like, okay, we're going to like dry that out and bring it back and it's going to be exactly what it was. Right. No. No, of course not. Yeah, it's of not. Of course not. Yeah. So, you know, we get, and we get the question a lot about, okay, well, what's, what's your, what's your equivalent? You know, it's like, I'm using X, and so what's your Y to X? And, and so it's like, yeah, well, let's talk about... In, in the ballpark, yeah, yeah, you know? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, now my biggest miss, and the one that I love, is the 1968. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and so not only for its character, but how it performs in the fermenter, and if you ever watch that stuff in, you know, a carboy, it looks like cottage cheese. Mm-hmm. And if, Disgusting. It's awesome. That shit drops like a rock. Yeah. Yeah. And so our ESB yeast, like, when, you know, my guys, and there's a bunch of contacts out there right. that are like, oh, uh, well, what do you have for 1968? I'm just like, well, <laughs> I can deliver on flavor and, you know, fermentation performance, just not on flocculation. And then you see everybody go, oh, well, okay. <laughs> you know, but I mean, yeah, you can work around that. Uh, you can, 
You can. It's just that's one of the beautiful things about that specific strain. Right. So, yeah. So how I come at my customers and how I try to direct the sales teams. Look, you never want to be anybody's sole supplier. You want to be a spice on the shelf. You want to be an option to go to, and it's based on whatever it is that you guys are doing. You know, maybe use ours, maybe use somebody else's. And when we talk about Jean, it comes out of left field where his approach is he's friends with all these guys. Like, he'll take Chris and to dinner and Jenny out and invite him up to Montreal and show him the labs. I mean, basically drop your drawers and, like, this is what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, his approach is none of us can do this by ourselves. That it takes a community in order to service this community. You know, I just say, dude, that's... That's a that's a good philosophy. That's a great philosophy. You know, yeah. that's pretty badass. Yeah. Well, I mean, it benefits everybody. Well, true, and it's the truth, yeah. really. Yeah. You know, it's just like nobody, like, we can't do what Yeast does. They can't do what we do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just different. It's kind of a different ball game, but you kind of, there's pros and cons of depending on the approach. So. Right. Okay, okay, so here goes the official podcast <laughs> stuff. <laughs> hey, everybody, this is Denny. We are sitting here overlooking the beautiful Columbia River in Hood River, Oregon. And today we're talking to my good buddy, Brian Perky, and we have assistance from Jeff and Susan Rankert here. We're just on our way back from Hop and Brew School, and I know you've heard enough about that. Uh, Susan, if you don't mind, since you have so much stewarding experience, I'm going to ask you to be the seller, master, and steward today. I can do that. I I knew you could. We are uh, sitting here drinking ale song beer and eating pretzels, and it's as it should be. So, Brian, thanks for taking time out to come over, man. I appreciate you guys stopping by the neighborhood. This is uh, uh, this is where I live, so uh, yeah. You know, and this is this is the first time I've actually been in Hood River, and not just driven through just on my way to somewhere else. You, you know, you suck. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty obvious. <laughs> People are well aware of that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, this stretch uh, here between the Dalles, right. you know, which is twenty minutes to the east, mm-hmm. and Cascade Locks, which is twenty minutes to the west. That's basically your cut through the gorge. Right. So you get to see that transition between western and eastern Oregon all in this one bell swoop here. It's a beautiful drive. And between that stretch, you've probably got a dozen breweries that you could stop and check out. Should, should you just so choose? Well, see, and that's the thing. It's like when I come through here, I've always got like, you know, three or four more hours of driving to do. So I never stop and check out these breweries. And that was, you know, the big incentive for me. It, it's like, you know, spend the night, actually have a chance to drink some beer here. And when I mentioned it to Jeff and Susan, it was like, yeah, if we have to. Twist your arm. <laughs> yeah, last year after Homebrew Con, Susan and I spent four nights here in Hood River and did a few day trips, but every night we hit some of the breweries. Right on. And it was So, so you, act, you live in Michigan, but you actually beat me here. Yeah, and we were here years ago, too, and... So you're right, I do suck. Yeah. <laughs> you never go to the places in your backyard. Well, you know, that's true. And unfortunately, if it was my backyard, it might actually be a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, it's when I'm on the road, it makes it difficult. Well, I'm glad you're here. Me too, man. So we met, like, what, like 15, 20 years ago when you were at Y.E.'s? Yeah, something like that. That would have been, 
Oh God, ninety. I started. I started brewing in '98, so it was probably like 2000 or so. Does that sound about right? The the three years I spent at Y East. So um, uh, that's that's where I first met you, and and the inception of the commercial release of the Denny's Favorite (laughs) Fifty. Yeah. Oh. Uh, I still blush when I think about that. And you're famous. I know it is, man. It's really weird. Uh, you know, I was in uh, in Australia last October, and that is like the biggest yeast in Australia. That's awesome. It is really awesome. <laughs> I kept having people come up to me and telling me how much they loved it. <laughs> this is Australia for God's sake. Uh, so okay, so let's let's get in the wayback machine here. How did you get started in the whole beer and brewing world? Were you a home brewer at some point? No, it was by. Uh, uh, by adject uh, failure and depression. <laughs> uh, once I realized that my career choice uh, was uh, not it. Uh, what was that career choice? Uh, marketing. Oh yeah. Uh, and I had uh, <clears throat> uh, landed a decent job in Portland and uh, and was doing like. Ex- well, exactly what I should have been doing at the time based on the plan that I had put forth when I was 18 years old, you know, going into college. And who, yeah, you had a plan when you were 18? Well, you, well, if you met my father, then yeah, you had, yeah, like, okay, yeah, okay. you had a plan. What are you doing? What are you, boy, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, and it, it was that thing of like, this, this sucks. And I had, in my cubicle, I had, uh, uh, that's when Calvin and Hobbes was published right, like sure. daily in the paper. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the covered with Calvin and Hobbes, you know, where it's this guy stuck in his environment, but, you know, his imagination allowed him to escape, you know, the, you know, mom or the teacher right. or whatever it was. Yeah. So, uh, and, and then the other thing was I had a noose hanging from the ceiling of my cubicle. <laughs> With a sign around it saying there are worse things to put around your neck than a tie. Mm-hmm. But I had sounds like rather dark days, dude. I had, I had. There were some dark days. Yeah, <laughs> and there were the days just like I don't know about that, you know. Uh, but yeah, just that had to bail. Like had to bail. The, the day came and um, specifics aside, you know, you say I'm walking out this door. I'm not turning around. Right. Uh, sorry, everybody. Sorry, Paul. You know, I'm out. Uh, <clears throat> and I got a job as a cook, breakfast cook. Uh, and I loved it. Uh, but the owners are assholes. And it's just like, okay, well, this is fun. Like, I like my, like the, the process of, mm-hmm. like, making soup, omelets, whatever. Right, sure. Yeah, yeah. So in that at that time, I was living in a house in Portland with a bunch of dudes, and one of those dudes was a brewer at Bridgeport. And he's like, they're hiring down on the packaging line. You should go talk to Neil, Neil Dickey. And I owe my life to that man. Cool. Uh, so I put on my blue linen, white collar shirt, tie, shine the shoes. This is circa <laughs> 1992, right? right? And uh, you know, go walking in and it's just like, uh, Mr. Dickey, I'm your four o'clock, and this is at the end of the day, you know. And he's like, got his head down on the desk, kind of like this, 
like as I poke my head in the door, and uh, and he looks up and he does like the kind of up and down thing, and first word he's like, "You're not right for the job." Yeah, <laughs> that's what came out of his mouth, you know. And it took me back for a minute, like, uh, dude, you can't do that to me. Like, come on, <laughs> you, you, you at least got to give me a chance, you know. And <sighs> heavy side, he's like, all right, show up tomorrow, 8 a.m., you know, not dressed like that, be prepared to work. Uh, we'll sit down at the end of the day. If you like the job, we'll fill out the paperwork. If not, I'll pay you five bucks an hour, buy you a beer, and send you down the road. And that was my first entry into brewing. Mm-hmm. Uh, was from the packaging side, you know, but you did the walkabout. And again, my buddy, you know, was one of the brewers. I'd never gone down to check it out. Right. Uh, but it's like, oh, yeah, there's Alex. So um, now backing up a little bit, growing up, my dad and his three brothers were all moonshiners. Ah. So I grew up around a still, mm-hmm. you know, and they did it. They did it more, I think, as a reason to get away from the wives, you know, <laughs> like, like hang out as brothers, you know, mm-hmm. in the barn and like talk, really. So, uh, and my dad doesn't drink, but he loves the process. He's right. a cabinet maker. Like he would build his own barrels, wow. you know, and like, and as kids, one of our jobs was to go out and pick corn or fruit or whatever cheap sugar source that they could get their hands on to either make pig feed or, oh, we're going to turn some of this into some chine. You know, so not understanding anything that was going on in the barn, just like, oh, these guys are out here, you know, yeah, right. making, making liquor. Yeah, right, whatever yeah. that is. One walk through the brewery, it was like, oh, yeah. Like, I have no idea what's going on here, but, yeah, this is all familiar. The, right. the tanks are just way bigger. So, again, this is 92, and there were a lot, a lot of slackers that were working at Bridgeport at that time. So you show some interest. You show some initiative. Hopefully you show some little intelligence. They're like, oh, you, you want to learn how to filter? DE filter. It's like, yeah, well, it looks like R2D2. Yeah, I want to learn that. You want to learn how to clean tank? Yeah, I want to learn that. Oh, you should have said no to that one, man. <laughs> uh, well, this is a fun one. So, Gansberg, right? Yeah. Cascade. Yeah. He and Portland Brewing, well, he was the maintenance manager at Bridgeport at the time that I was there. And so we had drained a bright tank. And he's like, all right, you're gonna learn how to, you're gonna learn how to clean the tank. Hand me a flashlight. He's like, first thing you do, you pop the manway door open, you know, and after it's depressurized, like, you gotta inspect that tank. <clears throat> all right. <laughs> flashlight head into like, you know, full CO2 Dude. environment, you know, yeah. it's just like, bam, against the manway, like out, and it's just like, ah. <laughs> So that's your first lesson. Never stick your head into an open man. <laughs> yeah. Asshole. Like, you just could have told me that, you know. Uh, but that was the experience of Bridgeport at that time. And the Ponzi still owned it. And it was before it got sold to Gambrinus. Right. And so I got to see that whole, we're talking about transitions, you know, later. But I got to see whole, that whole transition go down. So, uh, so that's where I got into all of this. Fell in love and uh, haven't looked back since. So how long were you at Bridgeport? Five years. And then what? Full sail. Can you full sail? What did you do there? Uh, brew, and then I got into 
um, operations. So working under Mac Lee, who's the operations manager at the time. Awesome dude. Um, and really, you know, learning, like starting on the packaging line, there was this old shitty 12 hid, you know, Italian filler. And then they finally brought in like this piece of crap, 64 head, like old Laverne and Shirley era yeah. soda machine, you know, before they, I was like, oh, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, before they finally stepped it up. So it was just like, all right, well, you understand that this is not just, you're not just making beer, that you can sit down with your friends at the end of the day and have a pint, which was awesome. Yeah. Like, there's this whole, like, there's an industry going on back there. And uh, so watching that kind of all evolve, it's like, okay, well, I want to understand the the business of this better than just, from the production standpoint. So operations seemed like that merger between sales, Mm -hmm. which was driving the brew board, like what you needed to make when, you know, at a full sale, it's like, are you sitting here? So another batch of Amber. (laughs) Of course. I hate Amber. Yeah. I hate Munich Mall because of that experience. (laughs) It's amazing. Uh, so that's why I got into operations mm-hmm. and then the employee buyout went down and then, uh, I asked for a raise and they're like, oh, you can't have a raise. We just like bought the brewery and we need to sell more beer. And I was like, okay, is that what you need to do? Sell more beer? Like what, where do I go to do that? You know, yeah. what, what does it take? And again, it was an opportunity to see that side of the business. So, uh, uh, off-premise sales, um, grocery stores, uh, convenience stores, the bars, uh, under Columbia Distributing in Portland. So I went out there, and then uh, that lasted about two years. And I was like, mm, <clears throat> "This ain't, this yeah, ain't it, right. this ain't it." So, it's so, so I, so I got back into production, right? And that's when I moved to California. So, when you were brewing, did you learn, like, much of the science behind it, or did they just say, this is the process, do this, do this, do this? You know, like, you can can be the monkey, you know, you can be the operator, you know, but understand why you're doing what it is that you're doing, and I think that's, like, that's intrinsically part of being in this industry. Like, you've got just this natural, like, curiosity. You know, there there are dudes out there, and they're machines, and thank God, like, Phil is in the cellar, and he's been in the cellar for 20 years, and he that's all he wants to do, and he's, like, amazing at it. Don't f*** with Phil, right? Let him do his thing. Uh, and then you got guys that are like, I'm an artist. You know, if I can't create the recipe, you, I'm out. Yeah. You know, so most of the guys are, like, trying to, like, learn more. You like do more, you know, but thank God there's the fill. Sure. (laughs) Yeah, right. You gotta have those. Yeah, but no, by by and large, like, you've gotta, you've gotta, you've gotta take the impetus of creating your own curriculum, right? Based on what it is that you wanna do. Right. You know, it's like in 92, I don't think, like, I probably could have taken, there was a SEBA course back then, you Mm -hmm. know, but it wouldn't have given me what there's nothing like just going and doing it with somebody who yeah. knows what they're doing yeah and it's like I tell like I I am 
I am great at like effing things up. <laughs> Fantastic. At it. And what you learn learned from that? That's right, dude. I will do it once. Yeah, yeah. I guarantee you, it won't happen a second time. Yeah, you know. Uh, so, but no, uh, through MBAA, yeah. primarily, yeah. you know, the Northwest chapter is fantastic. And then anybody that, like, I work, like, I got to work under Carl, mm-hmm. okay? I work under Phil Sexton out of, uh, out of Australia. You know, I got to work under Lundin and Neil at the, at the onset. Uh, you know, and you learn, right? Like, okay, yeah, yeah. I, are you sure about that? You know, kind of, can I question you on that? Can I find like the second opinion? And so you go sort of digging, you know. So that's where you start learning, sure, the science. But no, to go to like a course or a program or no, no, no. So, so you went to California. Were you still in brewing? Yeah. So I took a head brewer job for Gordon Biersch down in uh, San. Wow, Jose. that. <laughs> That is uh, fairly intense, I would imagine. It, it wasn't. It wasn't in the production plant. It was at one of okay. the pubs. Okay. So this was in. Uh, so it would have been their second pub that they bought in the chain after Dan started the Palo Alto uh-huh. brew pub. Okay. Uh, and it was an existing brew pub in the big. Apparently, it was an old French brewery. I never saw a recipe, I never saw a sign, I never saw any other reference other than somebody built a brewery in a basement with no drain. Oh, jeez. does that? <laughs> what did you do with your wastewater? Uh, Carried out in buckets? They they had dry bags. And, oh, yeah, and basically, like, one drain in the brewery, you know, and the cellar was over there. Right. So, yeah, so you had to drive, like, don't make a mess. And, <laughs> and so you got a lot of experience making loggers? Uh, loggers and installing sump systems. <laughs> <laughs> they had, like, a four-stage sump system to, like, get that thing dialed in. And uh, and then my son was born, and I got tired of working 60-hour weeks. So sure. the last two years that I was in California, I did go over and work for... Dan at the production plant. The first year I ran uh, his packaging department, mm-hmm. and then the second year I took a graveyard brewing shift because you could work 32 hours. Your shift differential was that right. extra eight. You don't, and I pretty much everywhere I worked, it was graveyard, right? Wow. You can play what music you want. You don't have to deal with any of the front office BS, right? Right. You see your running temperature don't like swing if somebody's like flushing a toilet somewhere. You just like, God damn it! I said don't use the water. <laughs> <laughs> things, things you never even think about, yeah. you know. But uh, but I hated California like from day one. Like I, it's like the job was great and I loved working for Dan and I appreciated the focus on loggers. Mm-hmm. Right, that was part of the thing. I want to learn loggers. Right. And, this guy has been around the block a little bit, so right. he could teach me a thing or two. Uh, but California sucked. San Jose sucked. Like, I didn't, it wasn't my thing. I came from here, Hood River, right. to Stan Ho. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, oh my God, what a dude. Really? What, what a shame. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're a Hood River native? No, from Salem, actually. Oh, really? Grew up in central BC and just then. Down the road from me. Salem. Uh, the Kerr Farm, which is a big hop grower. Yeah. Uh, Capital Farms 
uh, they used to grow for Budweiser before mm-hmm. you know, things went awry. Yeah, he, Andy, he was like, yeah, you're, the reason you're in the beer business is because of the proximity to our hops. Right. I so, was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so when you couldn't handle California anymore, what happened? Well, I started, I was on the hunt for a while, and that's when the Y East opportunity. So, and my coworkers from Full Sail mm-hmm. had kind of migrated up the hill, you know, to work with Dave. Mm-hmm. So that's where, well, Jess. Yeah, that, right. So mm-hmm. he's Imperial now, and right across the creek. So you're from Full Sail also? Yeah, yeah. We all. Oh, I didn't you know, realize. Jason up at Solera, Mike Bowler, who was out at Freebridge, and et cetera, and uh, the Dows, Doug right. over at Everybody's. Yeah. Greg Doss now. Mm-hmm. Who's, right. Like, yeah, no, but is, is Greg at full sale these days? He's the director of brewing office. That's what there. I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew he was at one point. I just didn't know if he yeah. was still there. So, uh, yeah, so that was kind of like the breeding ground for all of us, you know, out here in, in the gorge. That was that was a, quite some some group, man, that produced a lot of really great people out of there. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was uh, it's a good spot. So did you do sales at uh, Y East also? So I ran front office. Uh, so I would, they basically brought me in to be the point between the ladies on the desk and the guys in the lab. So it's basically, can you like be the buffer, like handle, <laughs> like you know, what, yeah. before you know the call gets sent back, you know, and then also like teach this crew like how to talk to brewers, like how to deal with brewers, you know. Brewers don't want to be sold. You know, right. it's like, look, I, 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 my time is short. You know, most of us can't like organize or plan our way out of a wet paper bag. You know, so no, I need that stuff like next week. You know, like I need a brew. Uh, you gotta understand that, respect that, and cater to that. You know, so uh, and then that's where all the where I ran into you. Right. You know, and part of the PC program, the seasonal program, is digging into the vault and looking at this stuff and. Uh, you know, out in the, the the trade shows, and you know, home brewing was still pretty strong at that point. You know, it's taken a bit of a yeah, a last of, last few years for sure. Yeah, it's, slowed it's, down. it's a bit of a hit, uh, but it's been fun looking at the reasons, some of the backstories to why. But uh, but yeah, I spent uh, spent three years with Y East before I got headhunted from Muntins. Yeah, I remember you going to Muntins too. Yeah. And then ended up a couple of years with those guys before, uh, um, for the writing uh, came clear on the wall. And uh, <laughs> that just wasn't the right place for you. Uh, uh, no, no, apparently not. Uh, and that, you know, working for a foreign national is a different outfit than the guy down, the farmer down the road, you mm-hmm. know, the brewer. Down the road, mm-hmm. um, uh, and that was my first time, you know, working for uh, a foreign outfit. Right. So uh, I did not understand the <laughs> needs from their perspective, uh, and they certainly weren't going to hear it from what I perceived their needs to be. <laughs> it's very different, and they certainly going to hear it about for some Yahoo like me, right? Yeah. So uh, fair enough, you know. Um, you can't lead an English horse to an American market and expect them to drink. 
So. Very well put. No. But, Since, uh, have I come you to grab another chair? Uh, but I'm still friends with those guys. Uh, That's good. Uh, my former boss is off doing another uh, malt uh, and ingredients project. So helping him out. And then the dude that took over for my boss, um, uh, who operates out of Chicago. And I love just seeing him in every like conference. You know, Providence was the last one out of home, right. out of home right. right. So it's like, dude. <laughs> Did you ever get to go over to England to the home office? Oh, yeah. Yeah, a couple times. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. You know, but... Uh, um, but I knew that I probably was in trouble when I uh, came in one morning and uh, just talked about how much fun I had basically in pub that happened to be in that little English town, and I got a bunch of like raised eyebrows, like, and I loved it. Like those guys are great. Like, yeah, you know, like no tourist ever comes in here. You know, who the hell are you? And that, I'm sure at the office they go. We don't go there. No, none of them did. Yeah. None of them did. They knew exactly where it was. Yeah, none of them even walked in. I'm like, what? What are you talking yeah. about? This place is awesome. <laughs> so it was that thing for two years. You know, like, right. where are you coming from? Like, right. what? I don't get you. So, uh, um, so where did you land after that? Uh, that I started working on cider. I remember when you were doing yeah. cider, man. So, rinse. yeah. Um, cider. Tried to start a cider company with a couple of my friends. Uh, just you know, chose, chose the wrong partners, so that enterprise didn't go anywhere. I still retain the rights to the brand, etc. Et um, and do some project stuff, but. Uh, but where cider started was at White East. You mean you making cider? Yeah, well, it's basically, it's like we got 300 strains in the bank. So, uh, you know, you can, and this is part of where the, the PC thing came from. Right, right. It's like, you know, let, we got to come up with something, so play around. It's like, well, I'm, I know what a lot of this is going to do in, in Word. But look at all this fruit that's hanging around here, right. you know, rotting on the trees. So let's squeeze some juice and play around. And ninety percent of that stuff went right down the drain because I had <laughs> zero clue, right. you know, as to uh, well, primarily nutrition requirements, you know, for cider. Uh, but also, like most Belgian phenolic strains, just don't make good cider. <laughs> Here's something that I discovered completely by accident that might interest you. Uh, we have probably like. 15 or so apple trees and a cider press. So we press a lot of apple juice every mm-hmm. year. And uh, what we don't freeze for apple juice, I turn into cider. And I tried all different kinds of cider yeast. You know, the, it started with EC118 and 1118, of course, and went through uh, all the white yeast, cider yeast, uh, started using the sweet mead yeast for a while. And a cup. I'll just point out that we had just opened a bottle of the Ale Song Cucumber Tom and Tonic, aged in Old Tom gin barrels. It doesn't suck. That does not suck. Yeah. It's the summer in a glass. It is, really. So, anyway, so a couple years ago, we had just gotten done pressing juice. We'd frozen as much as our freezer would hold and still had like five gallons of juice left. And I figured, okay, we'll we'll just ferment this. And the only yeast I had around was a slurry of 1450. (laughs) Of course. 
I dumped it in, and I'll be damned if that didn't make the best cider I have ever made. I have no doubt. You know, and I, to this day, I use it. It ferments almost completely dry, but it leaves a lot of apple flavor in the juice so that it's not sweet, but it tastes real apple-y. Yep. So should you be screwing around with cider again sometime? Give it I'll, a uh, I, I will give it a whirl. I, uh, in that exercise of making ciders out of white yeast and then concurrently doing the stuff for uh, Hood Valley Hard Cider, mm-hmm. it's new, our company, um, I settled on uh, the 3711. Yep. The French Saison. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so our equivalent is the Belle Saison. So, and it's not that it really matters with uh, fructose, it being a diastatic strain, but it goes, you know, bone dry. Right. You know, and don't, yeah, yeah. don't drop your hydrometer, you know, because you'll <laughs> crack that sucker. Uh, yeah, ask me how I know that one. Um, and that's that has been my go-to ever since, you know, for, like, the test batches that I do for CiderCon, uh, and then the small stuff, uh, working with the organic dude mm-hmm. up, the, up the hill who, uh, you know, it, and so cider is fun as an exercise, but really what I enjoy, the other aspect of it is that it, it for a struggling farmer, it's a way to stabilize their crop and turn that into margin that they can't, they couldn't touch as, you know, a straight fruit item. Right. You know, and so trying to get some the orchardists to like, you know, it's like, no, you're not, you're not just making booze. Like, you're not just in this, like, in the game, you know, of a tasting room and this and that and the other. It's like, look at what it can do for your farm terms of uh, uh, basically crop efficiency. Yeah, right. Well, and, and actually turning a profit. Well, yeah. I mean, True Top will pay you like 25 bucks a ton, you know, and you can't pay to have a pit for that. Right. So it's just like, okay, just let it rot, you know. So, <clears throat> turn it into a must. <laughs> you know, now, yeah, now we're talking. So, so, how, how so did you cider then? That was like a year or so before like my... Uh, financing ran out, yeah. and I was like, I, I know I need a job. So I went to work for um, the dude that sold Crispin mm-hmm. to Miller. Oh, yeah. And started uh, LDB Beverage mm-hmm. uh, over here in Stevenson. Bought the old, like, uh, Sierra tanks and Widmer tanks cool. and started doing um, ciders and sodas and some teas, you know, both non-alcoholic uh, and alcoholic. Um, but uh, our per- that guy is the consummate uh, entrepreneur, and I can only deal with that for about a year because the same energy that he was bringing to the table, you know, he expected us to deliver as well. Like you didn't have a steak like he did. Nope, not even close. Yeah. So and fair enough, yeah. you know. Sure. But and so it's like I, I gotta get out of this like production like you know manic thing to get you know, a little bit back make a turn. Side. So that's when I went over and worked for Thunder Island, right? For Dave and Caroline. So like what little sun barrel system right by the river. 
Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can get this. I will give you two years, you know. And so uh, came over here and worked for them, and uh, you know, but they're small outfit that. Uh, yeah, it's a barrel system down by the river. Right. You know, <laughs> and everything that entails. So I'm like, okay, well, I got two teenage kids now and uh, two ex-wives now. And I was like, I need a little bit, I need a little something more than yeah. this. Uh, the job at Lollaman had been posted for, it posted about six months prior to the end of my two-year contract, you know, verbal contract. Right. Like that would be awesome, you know what they're what they're trying to do, what they're looking at. Um, I'm gonna miss out on this. It was still there, like four months later, and so I started going through the application process, and uh, and it all basically it worked out. I had bail out of Thunder Island about a month early. Well, that's that's not too bad though. That that I wanted to, that I had like committed to, but. but left them in good hands. So, um, yeah, so now I've been with Lollaman for the last two and a half years or so. And so what's your title there? Uh, uh, Regional Sales Manager North America. So <laughs> That's a hell of a region. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I manage the commercial uh, brewing markets and home brew and home wine markets. Mm-hmm. For U.S. Canada, and then I help with Mexico and South America as well. <laughs> That's, that is a big territory. It is. I just got back from Brazil uh, a few weeks ago and did a did a lecture down there. Where were you in uh, Brazil? Uh, uh, east of uh, Curitiba, or sorry, west of Curitiba, uh, in a little town called uh, Guayaparva, okay. which is uh, the home of Agraria. So Agraria is a is a is a co-op uh, of five villages, mm-hmm. and they're five little German villages. Right. You know, some of the refugees that came out of Germany, you know, they weren't all the you know Nazis escaping, etc. Most of them were refugees that were stuck behind the the Iron Curtain. Mm-hmm. You know, as in the Russians, you know, came back right. e or west. They they weren't kind, you know, to especially to you know anybody of uh, German heritage. So right. everybody bailed. So five boats. The Brazilians gave this charity like here's all this land. Uh, come, you know, escape persecution. Blah blah blah. What a concept, huh? Yeah, really, yeah. man. <laughs> uh, so five no comment. <laughs> yeah. So five boats came over. Uh, each boat basically set up their own village. As a group, they started a farming co-op known as Agraria, mm-hmm. and they're now the largest producer of malting barley in South America. Wow. Hmm. So I knew that I heard the name, and that must be where I know yeah. it from. Yeah, and dude, like, first time I got invited to go down, just a couple years ago, I'm thinking, Brazil, right, rum, G-strings on the beach, you know, <laughs> yeah, the whole nine yards. Like, now, dude, you're going inland, halfway to Paraguay. And blonde hair, blue eyes, fancy Deutsch, the architecture, the food, the music, and it was, it, it was, it is awesome. It just was not what I was expecting, you know. So, so, so this year, uh, when I went down uh, to do uh, my talk, uh, I tacked a few extra days on 
to go out to Rio and spend right. there on Ipanema Beach. And so. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, uh, the beers are awesome down there, you know, and I think their craft scene is about where we were, you know, 20 years or so ago. But the quality is, I think, way way. So when you go down there, are you talking about technical yeast stuff, or are you telling people how to get it sold, or what? Uh, no, it, for like this type of conference, it, because it was directed to uh, brewers, uh, it's all about uh, the application of the widget. So yeah, so we sell yeast, but really the value that we deliver, right, and why we're a little more expensive than fermentus, mm-hmm. is that we will go and you know teach you how to do X or how. You know, it's, it's so, so you, you don't just sell them the yeast, yeah. you tell them how to use it yeah. Yeah. and what to expect yeah. of it. So, um, you know, our our marketing tagline is we brew with you. Cool. you know, and all of our sales guys come out of the industry. Because you know, as mentioned earlier, you know, like brewers don't like talking to salespeople. Right. Don't walk into that room with a tie on. Right? Sure. Um, so, and that's half the fun of the job. Well, I can imagine. Uh, yeah, and, and a lot of it becomes troubleshooting. You know, so hey, we've got uh, we've got a problem that we're trying to address. You know, we've got a problem that we're trying to solve, mm-hmm. and uh, which is what makes our foray into GMO yeast kind of exciting. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because okay. at, at HomebrewCon you had that yeast. Yeah. That it's the first time I had brewed with it, and it's the first time that I had actually put some in somebody's mouth, you know, to say what What do you think? Not only about the beer, but what do you think about the concept? You know, about bringing uh, a GMO solution mm-hmm. to a specific problem. Right, you know, it's like we can make banana yeast. You know, we can mm-hmm. make berry yeast. And part of my og- argument internal is like, why do you want to do that? Like, you've got flavors out there that you know exist and have been traditionally a part of what we do it forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but solve a problem, like especially when it comes to uh, production processing. You know, think about the flocculation, temperature control. Uh, attenuation, uh, acid production, which is what the sour VCA is all about. Right. And that's the first one that we've been starting to kind of dick around with. And uh, uh, I used a straight uh, a DME and uh, sucrose wort uh, to get to, uh, God, it was low. It was like uh, 1045, 1047. Uh, so low alcohol, right? And then I use that to create a base, a real acidic base. Uh, and one of the things that we found is the acidity levels depend on the composition of the word mm. by grain type. So wheat, like a wheat uh, uh, mash, will result in a higher level of lactic acid in the acid of the fermentation than something that's like 100% barley malt. It's a brave new world. Who who knew? Yeah, right. I mean, have have your uh, scientists figured out what's going on with that? No, we just figured it. We just like, we we just (laughs) just observed it. Yeah. Well, we had uh, Widmer is monkeying around with it. Really? So they, and they are brewing up a batch that uh, Brittany is uh, our 
Pacific North or West Coast rep. She's presenting on this coming weekend at the NBA Northwest mm-hmm. meeting out in Bend. But I'm serving that beer down at GABF this year cool. where I'm doing something with the, the craftbeer.com people in their sit and sip area. So they'll serve the Sour VCA for the four sessions, and then I'll go up on Saturday afternoon, and we're going to talk about GMO. You know, when you were first talking about that, you said, you know, you're, these beers were meant for blending because the straight beer was just too sour to drink. The three of us tried it there at the conference, and, you know, just no, I'm okay. just had sure. I just you know had a little bit, so I'm not sure how it would work if I drank a whole glass. But I did not find it well, too you, sour to drink. And you it remember my, my response? You're drunk. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that was the first. No, I was gonna say it was early. Day. It was early in the night. Well, that, it, was. It, was, it was early in the night, and I had not had a beer all day before <laughs> that. So, so you can't put that one on me. <laughs> you haven't had like. This, has that ever happened? You haven't had a beer all day. All the time. Really? Yeah. I was at Hoppin Brew School all day long with tubs and tubs of beer around, everybody else drinking. Uh, I would not drink until I went to dinner, like at 5 o'clock in the evening. Wow. Or you know? What's that like? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's a side effect of getting uh, old and having a bad heart. That's, that's called wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just saving it up for uh, the sports center. Yeah, that's right, man. Oh, the sports center. Uh, no, so. but uh, but that's our BCA. So I I thought it was out of balance, you know. And yeah, uh, was it drinkable? Probably. But what yeah. I try to achieve in all the beers that I make. Is uh, is balance? Yeah, I, I, and I didn't have. I mean, it was definitely drinkable. I didn't have enough to know if it was enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, you know? fair, fair enough. And yeah. that's that's the the differentiation there. So, but I did. I, I can see that being a great base for blending. Though. Yeah, but I blended it out in three different beers, so that Nori Goza. Yeah, that was interesting. Too much salt. I effed that one up. Uh, I'll do the next batch with uh, Kombu. Right. So, uh, and then just eliminate the salt altogether. Right. And see where that gets yeah. me. And then uh, the raspberry. I didn't have that. So one. I had raspberry wheat that I did and blended this into you know frambois ish. I can I can see that for sure. Yeah, it worked really good. And then the IPA. So. Yeah, and that one I missed also. What what, what did you think about it, the sour IPA? Uh, well, I liked it because it I blended it to balance. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't, like, it didn't outshine the hops, you know, and it was uh, it was in key with the residual. Right. So, Do you remember what kind of ratio you used? Uh, based on, yeah, so it was a little over 20% of acid base to the goza and to the raspberry. Right. And then uh, about 15% with the IPA okay. because of the bees. Sure, right, right. So. so what kind of reactions are you getting to a GMO yeast? Uh, you know, home, home brewers, I think, are by nature curious critters. Right. You know, they want to try stuff out. They're looking to, to learn. They will push the boundaries a lot further than most commercial guys. You know, and part of that's based on, it's like, well... That I got, I got, I got to sell that beer. Right. You know, you guys can pawn it off on you know your neighbors, your friends, <laughs> five gallons. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So right. we, and we free can, beer, somebody will drink. We it. can get rid of that in relatively short order. Right. You know. So, uh, and I got no push. I got 
See, when this started, when this whole... I'm back up for sure. just a minute. Uh, we, we're not doing this within Lalaland, right? The company that's doing this is an outfit called Moscoma. And they're a genetics lab that's based out in New Hampshire. And these are the guys that were doing, like, all of our genetics testing, all of our, you know, fingerprinting, like, the whole nine yards. And uh, then we figured out, it's like, dude, the only thing these guys are doing is our work. So we bought them. Uh, and a year later, get a call, and it's like, you know, we're, we're all homebrewers back here in the lab, and we made some yeast. Like, you did what? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say it's kind of double take. Yeah, right? it's like, uh, what are you working? And and they are and continue to like the first. They came down to Providence. Mm-hmm. They're right up the road, and they wet the pants. Like they loved it. Like the, <laughs> like the amount of uh, imagination, creativity, enthusiasm. That willingness to like basically have an open mind. Yes. Like this is the playground that we want to monkey around with. So next year you can expect a little bit better of a Lollaman, not better, uh, bigger. <laughs> I'm not that good. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me check that. Uh, presence both uh, on the stand. Uh, with some of the stuff that we're doing in-house. Right. Uh, and uh, I am working on forming an internal uh, homebrew club mm-hmm. uh, within Lawman. We have. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, well, the, I because of our, my position within the company and what craft delivers to us as a company, because we do baking, animal nutrition, plant nutrition, health, uh uh, specialty cultures, cheese, uh, cosmetics, uh, distilling, biofuels, you know, but everybody is like, oh, you work for the beer guys. <laughs> and it's like, oh, we, we, you know, we like beer. We make beer. And so they're like, I've met homebrewers from all these different BUs that are like scattered out there. And it's like, why aren't we, why aren't we more internally cohesive within our different divisions when it comes to this sort of thing? Kind of like an industry homebrew. Well, think about it. It's like, what is brewing? Other, it's art, it's science, history, and community all yeah. by the glass, right. right? And so community, it's like, we, well, we have this internal community. I had no idea these yahoos, you know, in the lab up there were making this stuff, you know, but the people are, the, all the players are there. So, uh, so maybe next year we'll have, we'll, we'll have a booth at club night, you know? Wow. I think it'd make a great presentation. Yeah, I do too, man. Yeah. I mean, you should definitely. Well, I told him I either want like, what's the crazy ball that Tesla did or the big, like, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the, the mad scientist, the Frankenstein, like that's what I want. Like our Holloman thing to be good. It's like science. <laughs> yeah, market, marketing is like, we don't have that in the budget. Like, you need to shut up. <laughs> yeah. oh, Jacob's ladder is expensive. <laughs> Drew can do a great imitation. I was going to say, pull one together. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, man, that's that's really exciting because that's like something totally different in the world of yeast. Uh, yeah, and but, you know, it's... Where I get excited about GMO in specific is that 
as a as a problem solver. You know that there are production issues which uh, some outfits have, and where this could be an option for the solution of that. Right. You know, like I said earlier, it's like, dude, I don't want to be anybody's like sole answer. You know, but I can be a spice on your cabinet. Mm-hmm. You know, I can help you solve a problem. You know, should you come across it. You know, and this is one of the this is one of the potential solutions. So a brave new world of yeast. Yeah, it's fun. Cool. It's fun. Cool. I think it's about time to go to a brewery, don't you guys? We got a few We're out here. I hear that that's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to get out of here. I want to thank Brian for being here today. I want to thank Jeff and Susan for sitting in and getting involved in the conversation. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Oh, a pleasure, man. I wish you'd do this again sometime. Anytime. Actually, you know what? Anytime you stop by. Uh, okay, well, that's an incentive. I think, <laughs> I think probably at the, the conference in Nashville next year, we should get together and talk about what's happened with this GMO East in the meantime. Okay, you know, yeah. And, and the, the Humber Club. And. If you really want to get homebrewers on board, free samples. <laughs> so we typically don't give out, we used to, but we typically don't give out yeast samples at conferences. And it's basically because we didn't really understand or know, nor do I think this, the random dude that's just like trying to like put something in his bag, you know, will come by and throw that sachet mm-hmm. in there. It's like, okay, now what did you do with it? Right. Did you throw it in the trunk of your car? Did it cook in there, you know, while you drove home to wherever? Exactly. You know, and now you're pissed off at me because right. that's exactly. the well, friends Yeah, it sucks. It's like, oh, this stuff doesn't work, you know, and da, da, da. Now, the exception to that, didn't really do it this year, but the year prior, and this is something that we're going to do again in Nashville, is that we will have... It's basically the scavenger hunt, and we'll get uh, uh, Brewcraft, Country Malt, probably on board. Cool. They're the ones that did it last year where, okay, you go get specialty malt there, and now you go over to the Yakima Chief thing, and you get their hops there, and now you come over to the yeast place, and you get your sachet there. So you walk home with that bag, which is basically a brew kit in the bag. Right. 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 Yeah. So then you remember it. It's for a reason. It's specific. But, yeah, the free yeast sample just kind of off the top. That being said, if you are a homebrew club and you're doing a contest, an event, uh, any educational session, we will provide you with the yeast to, to do Okay, that. listeners, Excellent. remember that uh, Lollamand is happy to provide yeast for your homebrew <laughs> contests. Uh, just write us and we'll get you in touch. Or do you want to give your email address? It, yeah, it's uh, the person I hired to manage all this is Aaron Glass. Oh, well, <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. Pretty much, yeah. So, And that's eglass at lollamand.com. All right. She's your, she's your huckleberry. Shoot, shoot Aaron an email. She's a sweetheart, and she will get some yeast out to you. She just recently sent me a big shipment that I've been sharing with all my friends. Good. So, yeah, man, it's great. Okay, thanks again. We'll see you all later. We're going to go have a beer. So that was my buddy Brian. Uh, what, a, what a career. Uh, when he got into brewing, he knew absolutely nothing about it and has worked his way up to some of the coolest jobs in the industry after that. He's brewed at Bridgeport. He's brewed at Widmer. He's brewed at Full Sail. Uh, he's worked for Y East. He's with Lollaman now. He's made cider. 
Um, just pretty much everything he can do, starting from not knowing anything. Well, that's always the best way to go, and I still want to pour one out for Bridgeport and the set IPA. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too, man. Uh, Blue Heron was probably one of the first craft beers I ever got into. Uh, it, it, it was so addictive, we used to call it Blue Heroin. I mean, I just, I liked sitting on the, the porch after going to uh, Pals and sitting there on that little railroad siding with a pizza and a pitcher of cask IPA. Uh, man, yeah, really. Yep. So, so anyway, it was a great afternoon, and uh, I hope all you guys enjoyed that as much as uh, I did. And if you have any questions for Brian based on what you just heard, please shoot us an email, send us a, a voicemail, uh, whatever you want to do. But uh, I'd be happy to get any questions off to Brian. There you have it, and the offer still holds. If Brian brought up any points there that you want to ask about, if you have any questions based on things that Lollamond has done since then, just shoot us an email at podcastedexperimentalbrew.com or shoot us a text or voicemail at 626-765-1AL. We'll get your questions off to Brian. And I'll be back in just a minute to wrap up this Drewless show. New seasons bring new brewing adventures with Yeast's Belgian Summer Private Collection, featuring 3463 Forbidden Fruit, 3942 Belgian Wheat, and 5151 Britannomyces Classeni. These premium liquid yeast strains bring you the opportunity to enhance your skills and elevate your experimental side. The dynamic fruitiness, spicy phenolics, and complex esters balance well with the malts, hops, and specialty ingredients of Belgian styles. For an adventurous twist, add seasonal fruit and berries, or try Brett C with its tropical tartness in your next creative fermentation. These strains were available now through the end of September. Visit yeastlab.com for homebrewing recipes, tips, and more about which styles pair best with these strains. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Does your fermenter need to have Wi-Fi? Not necessarily, but is a Wi-Fi enabled fermenter incredibly useful? You bet. Using the Grainfather app, brewers can monitor and adjust fermentation from anywhere in the world, a feature that could come in handy if you want to start a diacetyl rest while sipping an umbrella drink on the beach. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is constructed from 304 stainless steel and has a total work capacity of 8 gallons, making it just the right size for your 5-gallon batches with plenty of headspace. A 1.5-inch tri-clamp on the lid allows up to 2 psi of top pressure for work transfers, and the 2-inch tri-clamp port on the bottom of the cone makes true dumps a snap. 
Particularly nifty is the dual function valve that lets you transfer and sample beer or pull yeast using the same valve. The integrated 12-volt, 30-watt heating element makes it easy to gently warm your fermenter, while a built-in cooling sleeve only needs to be connected to an optional chiller to get the temperature down. The new and improved Grainfather Conical Fermenter Pro is available now at grainfather.com or at a homebrew shop near you. that's about it for this one thank you all for listening to experimental brewing you can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website experimentalbrew.com don't forget you can follow us on twitter where we're at exp brewing we're on facebook we're on instagram i tend to hang out on a lot of different beer forums the aha forum uh the beer garden and uh, well, you can always find me hanging around on facebook you can find Drew on the Homebrewing subreddit or on the Slack Homebrew channel. And don't forget that you can always ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave by emailing us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail or text at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. And as Drew would say, or brew wacky, and we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 